All the episodes you will hear on this podcast are the audio versions of the video content on the Great Light Studios YouTube channel. If you would like to watch the video version of this episode, you can find a link in the show notes. For those of you who may not know, I do rely on monthly financial supporters to continue doing everything I do through this platform. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. With all that said, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. The realm of that choice is in Christ. That choice is only in Christ. Our union with Christ is central to our understanding of who we are and how we are saved. So the benefits of his sacrificial death only are given to those who are in Christ, in him. So in the last video, I was responding to some comments from Calvinists on some of my Ephesians 1 videos where I, you know, explain some of my issues with how Calvinism deals with the text that all really focus on the in him phrase used by Paul, um, you know, in verse four, it's that we were, it says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world. And I find from my own personal experience that the in him seems to be neglected. And I think when you know and understand, I think what seems to be conclusively the understanding of what it means to be in him by both non-Calvinists and Calvinist commentators and thinkers, which is that it means union with Christ. If we're believers, Christ is in us. We also understand that the New Testament says we are in Christ. This is simply defining both ways of this union. To be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a relationship with Christ, a saving relationship with Christ, and are brought into union and communion with Him. And in such a way that as we are in Christ, what is true of Christ becomes true of us. His grace and His resources become our experience and possession. If Christ and the believer are made one, then that sin-righteousness exchange is entirely unobjectionable. It's as unobjectionable as what happens in a marriage when a man and a woman become one. I think when you consider that, taking that into Ephesians 1, uh, 4, you see that problems arise with the way Calvinism um, handles the text. At least that's my opinion. That's what I try to argue for in these videos. And so in the last video, I'm talking about some, you know, responses that I've been getting, a common response, which is basically to try to solve this, the issue I raised by saying that there's a certain sense in which the elect, um, in the mind of God at least, they have always been in Christ. And so I've been explaining why I think that is problematic. The Bible gives no room, never gives the possibility of people being described as being in Him prior to this point of time, uh, this point of faith and repentance, and then we're placed in, inside of Him. The Bible never, never mentions a sense or a form of being in Christ that exists prior to this point in time. You're either in Christ 
according to the Bible or you're in Adam. I can't think of any scripture. I've never come across a scripture that would communicate sort of a halfway point where you're 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 sort of in Christ, but you're sort of not in Christ yet. Or, or God sort of kind of identified you with Jesus, but he, he still kind of identifies you with Adam. And so in this video, I'm just going to share a few more thoughts about that. Because I, I again, this is a very common thing I'm getting as a response. And I just think it's worth spending a little bit of time on addressing various aspects of this. So I think that before the foundation of the world, God knows who will be in Christ. The choice he makes, you know, it is a choice of us, as Paul says. I think there is, even in the language, um, arguably, uh, a, a corporate context to it. God chose a people before the foundation of the world. In other words, God, the triune God, in eternity past, chose to save a particular people, Titus chapter 2, only in Christ Jesus, and not in any other way. And this people, as we know from Ephesians 1 verse 1, are the faithful in Christ Jesus that are being referred to. And so I think it's a perfectly reasonable, contextually consistent, biblical response that even has good grounding and I think the election of Israel and, and and how we see that play out, how that works, what that looks like throughout the Old Testament, to say that when Paul says God chose us in him before the foundation of the world, I think you could accurately say God chose, well, who's the us? We all agree the us he's talking to is the faithful in Christ Jesus. So God chose the faithful in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless. So does that mean God chose Bob and Tom and Susan to, to be faithful in Christ Jesus? Does that mean he said before the foundation of the world, I'm going to make Bob somebody who loves me. I'm going to leave these other people, you know, know the, the Phil and the George. I'm not going to make them the faithful in Christ Jesus. Uh, Tom, Bob, Susan, they, they're going to, I, by my decretive will, or I'm going to make them the faithful in Christ Jesus. So basically, God chose specific people to be in Christ. What Paul instead says is that not that God chose individuals to eventually get into Christ or chose them to be in Christ at some future point in time, but the choice of individuals by God was absolutely conditioned on this phrase in Christ. So the benefits of his sacrificial death only are given to those who are in Christ, in him. The realm of that choice is in Christ. That choice is only in Christ. Our union with Christ is central to our understanding of who we are and how we are saved. God chose people in him not to eventually get in him. We have every blessing in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. Oh my goodness, is Jesus important? Nothing comes to us except by our connection with Jesus. So they will have already established that this connection, it's only within this connection that we can be chosen. And then in different places, what you'll hear is places like where Piper will say that He'll say on the one hand, yes, our, our chosenness, this blessing, this privilege, it's only within our connection to Christ that we can have it. And then in another place, he'll say, but that choice of God was actually a choice of us to be in that sphere. So it's a choice that's not within the context of the sphere. It's a choice, some kind of 
separate blessing that places us in the sphere in the first place. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. So we are chosen to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ, chosen individually to be in Christ. So I see no other way to see that than to see it as a choice of, uh, of us, of God choosing us, not in Christ, but out of Christ. That really this is God choosing us out of Christ. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. That means that before God had created anything, in the mind of God, He had already identified those who He would place in union with His Son. So there you have Him communicating that getting Jesus is actually a fruit of election. That what happens first is that God chooses individuals and that choice of them, that, that mysterious blessing and favor we get from the Father, eventually brings us into connection and union with the Son. And so that is Jesus being a fruit of election rather than election, the spiritual blessing of election being a fruit of Jesus. If you have faith today in Christ and are thus united to Christ, it is because God chose you for this before the foundation of the world. That gives this idea of individuals somehow getting this special relationship with the Father prior to union with Christ and ultimately outside of Christ. I think a much better way to, to and simpler way even of interpreting this that leads to far less theological baggage is to simply look at the us who Paul is addressing, the faithful in Christ Jesus, and to see that God chose a people. So we are launching now into this massive issue of God's choosing a people for himself. In other words, God, the triune God, in eternity past, chose to save a particular people, Titus chapter 2. Now, one of the offensive things that I think is communicated in the New Testament is that being a natural descendant of Israel or Abraham didn't necessarily guarantee that you were a true member of that covenant people. I think that's one of the things that Paul tries to get across in, in places like Galatians 3.7 when he says, Know then, it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And then in Romans 2, 28 through 29, where he says, For no one is a Jew, no one is a true Jew, no one is part of this chosen people, truly, who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. So if you want to be a true member of this corporate Israel, Paul says, it doesn't just come by being a natural-born descendant of Abraham. So even though the Jewish people, the, the, the nation of Israel, was God's chosen people, that didn't necessarily guarantee that every individual within that nation was a part of the true uh, covenant people of God, true sons of Abraham, a true Jew. Just as God chose a people, Israel, and whether you were a, a true member of that elect corporate group depended on faithfulness, depended on faith, your response uh, to God. I think in the same way, God has chosen a people to be holy and blameless, a specific people. That is the church. God chose 
the faithful in Christ Jesus as the people who would get the spiritual blessing of being holy and blameless. Now that says nothing about whether or not God chose who would get into this category of people. So there's so many other things. I know we could go down a rabbit trail there about, well, the direct object of the verb uh, chose is us, which I have no problem with. Yes, it is us that is the direct object, but it's us. And I think you should at least, I would hope, I think if you're being sensible, if a Calvinist is being sensible, they should at least be able to look at this interpretation that I'm giving and not act like it's some crazy, outlandish, impossible way to interpret this passage, which is often the case that I just, I think it's sort of a attempt to distract. It, it's, this is legitimate. And I think it, it objectively so, a legitimate way to look at this text. God chose the faithful in Christ Jesus. I just think there's nothing about this passage that should lead the Calvinist to hear that interpretation and act like it's some strange, bizarre, outlandish, and impossible way of reading this text. I've often emphasized the fact that there are some who try to create a class election here, where what the text is actually saying is, just as he chose a nameless, faceless group in Christ, or chose Christ so that anyone who is in him can then receive these benefits. That's normally how it's handled. I said, no, that's not what it says. A common objection to a more corporate understanding of Ephesians 1-4 would be to say that this view promotes an idea of God choosing a nameless, faceless group. And so to this, I would just say that I think that's a, a confusion because this is not a matter of one group, Calvinism, allowing for God to choose or be choosing personal individual names and faces while the other one does not. I believe that I, being in Christ, I am personally individually chosen. God knows my name and he knows my face personally. And so both views have God choosing personal names and faces. Now the difference is when that choice takes place. And this is where I think the key fundamental difference lies. Because Calvinism would suggest that God chooses individual personal names and faces before those individuals are connected or in union with Christ, that that choice takes place in order for these individual names and faces to be in Christ. While I would say, yes, there are individual names and faces chosen, but they're chosen within the context of that connection to Christ. So the complaint that this view promotes a nameless, faceless choice of God, I think just falls flat because it's not true. Yes, the choosing of the names and faces is perhaps a step removed. It's, it's a little bit further down the line than what the Calvinist proposes, but I think it places that choice of faces and names within the context of union with Christ, which even according to the Calvinist, it's exclusively in Christ that we gain access to the spiritual blessing of being chosen in the first place. The blessings of God, choosing, predestining, adopting, um, all these actions of the Father are done in and only in Jesus Christ. There is an absolute exclusivity to the Christian message.
So before the foundation of the world, I do believe that God knows who will be in Christ. And so when, you know, the Calvinists will say from God's eternal perspective, I do think God does have an eternal perspective, but I think there's a, a difference between knowing things that are going to happen, having an eternal perspective and, and difference between that and between relating to us as if that that future event has already happened. The Calvinist, in suggesting an individualistic and personal election of specific people before they were born, I think suggests that in their view, God has always seen and related to the elect as if they are in Christ. Now, Scripture makes it clear that your union with Christ is pervasive from eternity to eternity. And I don't know that you've thought it that way, thought of it that way, but you will this morning. Now let's go back to Ephesians 1. Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. Now I don't know if you've ever thought of that with the clarity that I want you to think about it this morning. In His mind, when He made the plan, and in His mind, at that very moment, they were in Christ. God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So in Christ, in connection with Christ, God sees us before we existed in such a way that our election hangs on our being connected somehow with Jesus before we even exist. So I don't know if you're picking up on what's being said here, but you have throughout all these clips, what I hope you're hearing is first, so much that I agree with in terms of establishing and defining union with Christ and explaining these limits and boundaries to it that all spiritual blessings are exclusively found within the context of this connection to Christ. Those who are chosen are chosen in Christ. There is no election outside of union with Christ. We have every blessing in the heavenly places because we are in Christ Jesus. We are elect in Christ Jesus. We are blessed in the beloved. Nothing comes to us except by our connection with Jesus. What happens though is what I think is a very clear disconnect from that. They'll set up these pre-established concepts and definitions. To be in Christ, first of all, means that we have a relationship with Christ, a saving relationship with Christ. And then they'll come to what is somewhat of a vague and unclear passage, Ephesians 1, 4, and this reference to before the foundation of the world. And then they seem to just make a complete disconnect from so many of the clear things they've already established and said. And so they will have already established that this connection, it's only within this connection that we can be chosen. They'll establish that faith is the point in time that we become connected to Christ. When I become attached to Jesus by faith, and now I use this biblical phrase, I am in Christ. And then they'll say, but somehow, We've always been connected to Christ, even before we were born, before we believed. We entered into this world connected to, to Christ in some mysterious way. They establish exclusivity of all spiritual blessings in Christ within this connection with Him. They then establish clearly that this connection with Christ comes only through faith. And then in light of all the contradictions that it brings, they'll go on to say, but somehow, with an appeal to mystery, with no explanation about how this makes sense or why this is the best direction to go, they'll say, we've always been connected to Christ. And so I think it just comes down to that difference between God 
knowing things that are gonna happen, having exhaustive foreknowledge of the future, and God relating to people, relating to people who he's not yet reconciled with as if he is reconciled with them. So let me try to explain what I mean by that distinction between God knowing something that's gonna happen and God relating to people as if that future event has already happened, as I think the Calvinist does here. So God has always known that we would be in Christ, but before we actually came to be in him, he did not, and I would say could not, see us and perceive us and relate to us and consider us as if we already were in him. So Calvinists will agree there is a specific point in time where we you know, actually come to be in Christ, but before that, God perceived us. He, his perspective was, his eternal perspective was that we were already in him. So I know we've already discussed a lot, lot of the problems with that, but I just want to acknowledge what I'm trying to do is acknowledge that I understand God does have an eternal perspective, but I just think you, you should see the dis distinction that I think should be made there between God having an eternal perspective and God relating to us as if the future events that he knows in that perspective, relating to us as if they've already happened. In Calvinism's view, before the foundation of the world, God was not only knowing who would be in Christ, uh, but by giving them the spiritual blessing of being chosen to be holy and blameless, this is a blessing that Calvinists would say the elect are given uh, before they're born and before they actually come to be in Christ. They're actually chosen before they are actually in Christ. That, that's what I, I'm hoping that's where you see the difference here, the distinction I, I'm trying to make. Calvinists would say we are actually chosen before we are actually in Christ. The way they, so that's, that's kind of another way, I guess, of saying the contradiction I try to convey in my videos that I've made about Ephesians 1. And the Calvinist response, again, that I'm talking about here is they would try to solve that dilemma by saying, well, God has always, from his eternal perspective, he's, he's although there is an actual point in time we come to be in Christ, in his mind, we've always been in Christ. And so that's how they excuse God actually giving us this blessing of being chosen before the foundation of the world. But if we are actually chosen, if God can give us that blessing before we are actually in Christ, then who is to say that God did not actually give us also the other things we've already discussed, redemption, forgiveness of sins, uh, you know, being new creations, etc. You know, if God can give us that privilege, that blessing of being chosen, actually, he actually gives it to us, it's actually true of us before we're born, then there is no logical, rational, biblical reason to say that all the other things that are also said to be in Christ, which being chosen is, it's in him, all the other things that come with that, redemption, forgiveness of sins, no condemnation, according to Romans 8.1, being sons of God, according to Galatians. Um, there's no reason to say that all those things weren't actually true of us at the same time. All spiritual blessings flow from God and they do so only in Christ. Throughout this passage, we will see the phrase in Christ or in him repeated over and over again, all to emphasize the uniqueness of the Christian gospel, where God saves men in Christ and in no other way. You know, when you read Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 2, 
that phrase in him, in him, in Christ is repeated over and over. And we were chosen in Christ. We were predestined in Christ. I mean, all the way down to the Holy Spirit, we are sealed by the Spirit in Christ. Um, and, and so the life of Christ is now in us um, by virtue of our being in Christ. And the fact of the matter is, and Christ is in us. So it's, it's a, a, a double union, if you will. He chose us in Christ. We had to be viewed as linked up with, folded into, forgiven by, redeemed by Christ in order for us to be chosen. So in order to maintain the specific view of election that Calvinism assumes into this text, they have to, in essence, draw the conclusion that in the mind of God, from the very beginning, long before we were in relationship with Christ by faith, we were viewed as forgiven, redeemed, and already in relationship with Christ. Here, Piper is acknowledging that separate from the reconciliation that is only available through our being connected to Christ, God cannot choose us. To choose us is to grant to us a benefit of salvation. To choose us is to relate to us in a reconciled way, in a way that would be impossible unless the gap, the separation between us, had already been bridged. The ultimate logical conclusions of what Piper is saying is that to be chosen is something that cannot possibly be true of anyone who does not already have a present connection and relationship with Christ. What the things Piper is saying should do, I think, is to make him pause, consider, and to have a deeply profound aha moment in realizing that we could not have possibly been considered to be actually chosen by God until we had actually come to faith in Christ. Instead of doing this, however, he goes in a direction that entirely, I would say, undermines the rest of the New Testament and ultimately undermines any significant need for Christ to come. If God already was able to relate to us as if he was already reconciled to us, which is clearly what Piper is communicating here, then why go through all the extra trouble to reconcile us through Jesus' death on the cross? If he could already dispense to us the benefits that come only when we are reconciled, then in every meaningful sense of the word, we were already reconciled long before we had faith and long before Christ died. How is this not making what Christ actually performed on the cross somewhat superfluous, as if it was really little more than a symbolic expression of something that had already been accomplished and was already, in essence, finalized? our reconciliation. For Piper to say that God was already viewing the elect as forgiven and redeemed when they were born into this world is to quite clearly suggest that the elect were never lost and never in need of salvation. When the elect come to faith, it is little more than them waking up to a realization of things that had always been true of them. They had never been children of wrath, and now they are aware of that. They had always been forgiven, and now they know that. They were never under any threat of judgment or separation from Christ because they were born in an inseparable and unbreakable connection to him. In short, I think that when Calvinists like Piper say that God has always identified and related to the elect as belonging to him, it is to trivialize our actual salvation. 
So to simply appeal to God having an eternal perspective where he, because he knows all things, ordained all things according to the Calvinist, he has always seen the elect as being in Christ. Well, that's you can say that, but what you're still saying is that God actually saw us as we were actually in Christ, or at least actually receiving the benefits already of being in Christ. And so again, that's why I say there's no distinction. You might as well just say we've always been in Christ. I don't I don't know what the real difference is when you say there was a point in time where we actually came to be in Christ, while, while before it was only in the mind of God. You were joined to him in the mind of God. In eternity past before anything was ever created. But this choice is timeless. It is made before the foundation of the world, before creation itself. The choice is wholly divine and wholly based upon the will of God. For at the time of the election of us in Christ, nothing else but God existed. Election is wholly of him. In your, your, on your side, even when it's only in the mind of God, God is still actually dispensing the spiritual blessings and privileges that come along with actually being in Christ. I know I'm being a bit repetitive right now, but I just, I, I hope you can see that. I hope you can see that that's, that's where this, I think, fundamental disagreement comes down to, at least between myself and the Calvinist. So Calvinists believe that there was a specific personal individualistic choice of each of the elect before the foundation of the world. For example, certain elect people like Bob, Tom, Susan were personally chosen by God before they were ever born. They were actually chosen uh, before they were actually in Christ. But again, Ephesians 1.4 says God chose us in Christ. Verse 3 says that every spiritual blessing is in Christ, has been given to us in Christ. So surely the privilege of becoming one of the elect of God chosen to be holy and blameless, that would count, surely, as, you know, within the category, within the de definition of being a spiritual blessing that is referenced in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. So if the Calvinist is right in interpreting verse 4 as saying that Bob, Tom, and Susan were individually and actually chosen before they were ever born, then how is this God choosing them in Christ? If in Christ actually happens way, way down the road, you know, thousands of years, millions of years, however many years after the, the actual choice was made, you know, if Ephesians 1 says that choice is in Christ, you know, you can't have, you can't have actual here and actual here. The actual event in events, they happen unanimously. They happen at the same time. They are inseparable. So again, the point I'm trying to make is if, you know, the Bob, Tom, Susan were actually individually chosen before the foundation of the world, then I think, again, you're kind of forced into this place because that, that privilege is said to be in Christ. You're kind of forced into a place of saying that at least in some very real sense, the elect have always been in Christ. But again, then you have to get into explaining how do you separate these different blessings and benefits that are, that are again, part and parcel with being in Christ. How can you say on the one hand, yes, we get this blessing of being chosen, which is, yes, it, it is said to only be in Christ that one can be chosen. And so you get that blessing, but somehow you get that one actually without getting all the other ones at the same time. Because I, I know that the Calvinists would, I think, I think if at least they're thinking this through, they should be 
you know, to say they should be hesitant is to put it lightly. They should not want to go the route of saying that the elect have always, you know, had all these blessings that also go along with being in Christ, because I think that results in a whole lot of other issues. So no one disputes that when we believe, that is the specific point in time where we actually come to be in Christ, where before we were not in him. So even this Calvinist that I'm responding to in the comments, he's even still making this distinction of, yes, in the mind of God, he saw us as in Christ, but there's a point where we actually come to be in Christ. And I see Calvinists making this distinction, this, this you know acknowledgement that, yes, the point in time where we, from our perspective, is, is how some will word it, come to be in Christ, is, is at the point of faith. But again, I think to say, yes, in our perspective, we come to be in Christ at a point in time. From God's perspective, we've always been in Christ. I just think that's that's just a confused and somewhat misleading way of saying we've always been in Christ. Because if it's only in our own minds and understanding that we didn't get in Christ to a certain point, but in God's mind, we have been all along. Again, that's another way of saying we've always been in Christ. If it was true in God's mind, then... God is the I am. He is reality. In him, we live and move and have our being. So it, it could not have become any more actual that we are in Christ than, than it is if it was true in God's mind. But there's this agreement that being in Christ happens at the moment of faith, uh, where before we were not in him. So how, again, how could the elect be chosen in Christ before they were even born? Uh, if the Calvinist says they get in, they actually get in Christ here. And so I just think, yeah, that's, that's one of those things that I think Calvinists would need to sort out here that how can it be that you actually come to be in Christ here, but somehow you are actually getting the privileges back here before the foundation of the world for God to specifically choose someone to be holy and blameless is for him to give to that person a foundational aspect, arguably the most important aspect of reconciliation with him. The, 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 you know, the biggest aspect of what we need in Calvinism is that God chose us. If you have that, you get everything else. So that, that is the main part of salvation. It's God's, you know, election to salvation. It's his unconditional election. So Calvinism has God giving actually the elect the most important aspect of reconciliation with himself before, according to them, they are actually in Christ. The first of these blessings is the blessing of being chosen and predestined. This is the first and primary of all heavenly blessings. This is where our salvation begins. And this doctrine of sovereign choosing, predestination, sovereign election is what determines not only the beginning, but the ending. Every blessing is granted to the saints and the faithful. Every blessing, every heavenly blessing. But every heavenly blessing is granted to the saints and faithful because they were chosen. I think that the spiritual blessings referred to in Ephesians 1.3, uh, again, I think that includes being chosen. I think these are all salvific, you know, reconciliation-related privileges and blessings. And again, Calvinism has God giving at least one of those spiritual blessings. Again, I would say the most important one, 
to those who, in my estimation, cannot reasonably be said to be in Christ, which is where every spiritual blessing is located. And so I just do not see any reasonable way one can conclude that in any sense, in any real sense, we were actually in Christ before the foundation of the world. I think that leads to a whole lot of, you know, contradictory implications. The reality is that the self-giving of the Son is such a radical act of grace that to try to extend that outside of Christ is to show a fundamental misunderstanding of not only who Christ is, but who the Father is and what union with Christ is. I think you can just hear, hopefully in these clips, what I can't help but hear is just constant inconsistency, setting up these rules and boundaries and definitions of union with Christ. They'll emphasize the importance, the exclusivity of in Christ, this connection to Christ being the only place we get the blessings. The benefits only are given to those who are in Christ, in him. The blessings of God, choosing, predestining, are done in and only in Jesus Christ. There is an absolute exclusivity. And then in the next sentence, they'll dismiss this concept that we are only chosen in as much as we are in Christ. I've often emphasized the fact that there are some who try to create a class election here, where what the text is actually saying is, just as he chose a nameless, faceless group in Christ, or chose Christ so that anyone who is in him can then receive these benefits. That's normally how it's handled. I said, no, that's not what it says. To say that we've always been connected to Christ is to do something quite a bit more than to just simply make an appeal to God's eternal perspective and, and, and his, the mystery of his foreknowledge and all that. It's to say that not that God just simply knows future events, knows what will happen, but he's relating to us, to people who have not come to Christ as if they already have. Again, that is not to say that God does not have full foreknowledge of all things and um, he knows who will be in Christ, but it's just this element where I think the Calvinist goes to where it's not only that God knows all things that will happen, but he's relating to people, blessing people as if that thing has already come to pass. And basically that results in God giving people spiritual blessings who are not yet in Christ, which is the location of every spiritual blessing. Again, unless you want to say that somehow God saw people always as being in Christ, which then leads to all these other issues that we've already discussed here. So Calvinists must find a way, I think, to incorporate the in him into their explanation of Ephesians 1-4 in a way that isn't vague or fuzzy and unclear. I think a way that I think brings consistency in the way Calvinists interpret this, which, which I personally have not seen a whole lot of consistency in how they really think about the in him of Ephesians 1-4. I also think Calvinists need to find a way to understand the in him of Ephesians 1-4 so that it's not unconsequential and it's not unnecessary really ultimately in making conclusions about the text. I think it needs to be understood, the in him, within Ephesians 1-4 in a way that you you couldn't remove it and still reach the same conclusions you do, which I I do think is the case 
for for the way that Calvinists um, understand it. Again, I do believe the Calvinists could entirely remove in him from verse 4, and their interpretation of this verse would not change uh, one bit. This, I think, is a clear indication that there is something deeply wrong about how they are interpreting it. When I present this point to Calvinists, and have in the past, when I push them to explain what they think the significance of the phrase in him is in verse 4, it feels as if, for the most part, the Calvinists I talk to at least, come up on the spot really with what they think about it. I get a strong vibe that most of them have given it very little thought uh, beforehand, before I actually ask them about it. And therefore, their answers to this, the various Calvinists that I've talked to, uh, I've, I have found are quite varied. And, and you know they give varying responses. And usually those responses seem to be quite vague and unsettled. Unsettled in the sense that, you know, it's like, well, you know, it, it could mean this. It kind of means it's just like there's not a clear, like, we're coming into Ephesians 1 having considered the importance, the significance of Paul's usage of this phrase in him. We've thought about it. We've thought it through. We've looked into how the, the you know, within the context, um, the, these, uh, this audience would have understood that. What did he mean? Uh, and ultimately arriving at this idea of, you know, union. And then, and then understanding Ephesians 1, uh, and particularly verse 4, through that, I just, I don't get that at all. I get that the in him is very much an afterthought. It's secondary. It is non-consequential. It's something that could be or could not be there. And the Calvinist interpretation would still be fine. Again, this all gives me the strong impression that they have given it little to no intentional thought. I'm not saying this is the case for everybody, but I do think this is the case for many who hold a Calvinistic interpretation of Ephesians 1.4. I think also that this likely indicates, and even I'll say again from experience, that a lot of prominent Calvinist leaders and thinkers are likewise not giving this question not giving this phrase in him in verse 1-4, I don't feel like much thought or attention. Um, and at least the way they think about and interpret the in him in other places, I don't see them bringing that into Ephesians 1-4 and the in him there. This has been my experience, at least. Um, as again, I have found listening to various Calvinists um, that they will only give brief kind of passing mentions of the in him. And they'll just say something, you know, it's only because of Christ or uh, it's because of what Christ did. But there's no extrapolating of, of what does that mean? How does it actually work? Like, what, what does it mean that it's because of Christ that God chose us? Um, it's also because of Christ that God forgives us. But we know that can entail not having an, uh, an actual relationship with Christ in order for that forgiveness to be there. So how is it that, yes, it's because of Christ that God chose us, but he chose us apart from Christ, before Christ, when we were not yet in Christ? And so I just, I think these are things that to me are apparent that should be there. Um, I think when we are, again, looking at Ephesians 1, knowing that because in him and in Christ, this phrase is repeated 10 to 12 times, this should be, I think, a central focus as we move through this passage. We need to keep in mind what Paul meant by it, or I think we're going to go completely off track. 
this concept is, I would say, arguably foundational to much of Paul's writings, you know, especially Ephesians 1. I think it's foundational to Ephesians 1 4. And so, all this to say, I think that Calvinists need to have a way of explaining Ephesians 1 4 so that the proper weight and attention is given to in him and it's not made uh, insignificant as I think it often is. And I think as we've seen hopefully what I've wanted to explain and you can you watching you can be the the obviously the judge of all this in which position if you think this response um, this comment that I've been responding to that um, says you know we have always been in Christ if you think that's that works for you I mean that's fine I can't convince anybody of anything I'm just here to present why I think there are just so many issues that arrive from that idea. And I think rather than solving, you know, as these uh, Calvinists are attempting to do by bringing this response to my Ephesians 1 videos, um, rather than solving, I think, the problems that I present toward, I think, Calvinism and their interpretations of Ephesians 1 in these videos, rather than solving it, I think it just, this sort of response just creates a whole other you know, load of, of other problems. Thank you for listening to the Great Light Studios podcast. To find more information and resources or to watch our films, you can find links in the show notes of this episode to our Facebook, YouTube, and other social media accounts. If you are blessed by the resources produced through Great Light Studios and want to help support me in continuing to do all this, then you can find information about how to in the show notes of this episode. And also, would you consider leaving a five-star review on this podcast? Positive reviews go a long way in helping to get this content pushed out to more people. Mm-hmm.